Welcome back, everyone. I am Cass Piancy, and I am here, as usual, with my partner in crime, Bennett Tomlin. How are you today? I'm doing well, Cass. How are you? I'm doing good. Today, we are joined with a really special guest. I've been excited about this interview. We have the one, the only, the chicken, Doomberg. How are you? Hey, Cass and Bennett. I'm doing great. It's uh, fantastic to be on your show. Big fans of your work. Appreciate you having having me on. And uh, Bennett, I did wanted to start by saying congratulations on on your new the FUD letter and uh, encourage everybody listening to go sign up. I know that's a passion project and a big part of what you do. And we're proud of you. We're watching you from a distance and um, hoping hoping for great success for you in that endeavor. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Nice, nice little shill there to start the uh, to start the show. Uh, we're all in the clicks business, you know. It's uh... <laughs> right, right. We were talking to you briefly there before we hopped on, and I, I think it's important that we try to bridge. There's there's clearly a gap between uh, cryptocurrency bros and traditional finance, and I and this probably bleeds throughout venture capital and hedge funds and all this stuff as well. But I think it's worth talking about regulation, traditional finance, what you're accustomed to and how you think it's pertinent to uh, cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency advocates. So so yeah, let's start. And also, you know, please introduce yourself for anyone who is unfamiliar with Doomberg. Sure. So Doomberg is the, the anonymous publishing arm of a bespoke consulting firm. We provide advisory services to you know family offices and, and C-suite executives. Uh, the composition of the Doomberg team, and I should say up front that Doomberg is, is a team, and I, I just sort of represent the team on podcasts. I'm the head writer of Doomberg, which uh, we, we publish on Substack, so it's doomberg.substack.com. But Doomberg is, is an anonymous publishing arm. The topics we address with a solid foundation of industrial experience, um, our team is composed of former you know, high-level executives in the commodity space, I would describe broadly, the basic part of the economy, uh, to give it a bit of a derogatory term, but I think a critical part of the economy, as we're all starting to find out now. And um, we come from... A bit of a sort of skeptical rules following. Um, we've been, uh, you know, interacting with the SEC in our former professional lives and writing about regulatory moves in the crypto space. I, I should say upfront that um, we're no coiners. I, I never owned a cryptocurrency. We have a, a passing knowledge of the, some of the technologies behind many of the things in the market today. But we bring the perspective of analyzing what's occurring in the cryptocurrency world through the sort of regular lens of traditional finance and um, our clients. Clients, for example, would would probably be no corners. Some wealth that view what's going on in this market and are trying to understand it, and to the extent that we can try to understand it and then rearticulate it, both in our written pieces and in our advisory services, um, that's the angle that we come at it. And and I should say also that um, many of the sort of Bitcoin maxis would view us as Bitcoin skeptics or crypto skeptics. We're more skeptical about what the excesses that we see in the market and wonder when and how the regulatory regime will crack down on it and what that means for the market as it's grown to be so large. And so that as a background is sort of most relevant for your listeners here today. Can you speak to perhaps some of the cultural differences in terms of views around regulation between the crypto sphere that you've observed and more traditional commodities businesses? Yeah, so there's I would divide the crypto world into two camps. There are the unabashed sort of rebels that have a stated desire to bring down the traditional system. And then there's the whole separate category of people that are speculating in what you and I would typically call a mania. And um, that subset of people are participating in a greater fool's trade under the assumption that they're, they'll be smarter than the next fool. And they're two completely separate people. The Bitcoin maxis fall into the former category, I would say. They view 
uh, Bitcoin as a movement. They view Bitcoin, many would say, as a religion. Some would say a cult. And they view this as an overt attempt to destabilize, to usurp, to penetrate, and then kill from within the traditional financial system. And the, a lot of the language that they use to justify their mission is wrapped around sort of a revolutionary martyr type language where this is this this current system is evil it's wrong it's bad and by the way they make many compelling arguments that is part of the seduction of their of their message and that's fine and we understand that but the second category of people who are in it for greater fool's trade might not believe that they're in it for the benjamins as we say and they need to have a really deep understanding of the potential counter punches now the Bitcoin maxis might say that the counterpunches will ultimately be ineffective. But if you're in it for a trade, you need to understand the ebbs and the flows of those punches and the impact on the mark-to-market value of the entity that you're trading. So with that sort of background and the framework of the analysis through which we analyze the crypto space for our readers and our clients, um, the thing that really draws our attention to this story, uh, and we don't write about it a lot, so if people are listening and, and and we'd be thrilled if they go and subscribe to us. You, you should know that maybe one out of every eight or ten pieces we write impacts the uh, crypto space. We're much more about energy and geopolitics and the economy in general. But crypto's grown so big that you can't write about those other topics without understanding the impact of crypto. Um, but we, we are baffled. We are amazed. We are befuddled by the amount of flagrant lawlessness that seems to be occurring under the eyes of everybody on the blockchain with permanent records. And we just don't understand how people can get away with it. And, and in some of our earlier pieces, we made the following analogy. I personally cannot go to my bank and withdraw $9,999 more than once on a day without being suspected of structuring. There are banking laws. They're severe. They're strict. The government cares. And in the real world, literally my own money is being sort of gated in ways that would draw suspicion if I behaved in totally legal ways, but would draw the suspicion in the ire of you know, the Treasury or the IRS or pick your favorite regulatory enforcement. And then in the crypto world, we see billions of dollars trading hands in questionable ways where regulators just see this occurring. And you, you obviously you guys know better than anybody um, with the prolonged battle that you've had with sort of Tether, I would say. It's just profound how much, you know, you rob a bank, you go to jail for 15 years, you rob people of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of their fiat currency, then you just, it's a hack. And, th and this touches on um, a point I think that's Im important, which is uh, when I, after all of these years, reflect on what's going to happen with Tether, what's going to happen with Bitfinex, I, there's always a correction in cryptocurrency markets. We've seen three or four of them now. But uh, I mean, not me personally, but the crypto markets themselves have Bitcoin itself has seen three or four market corrections and then continue can, more than that, Bennett? Is it more? More than that. It, yeah, more than that. Anyway, it's disheartening to me that it's this has gone on so long because it has been so flagrant and it has been so clearly, if not fraud, then at least like clearly not following the rules and not caring about about ever trying to follow the rules. And it makes me personally, I, it's, it's, to me, it's a coin flip if Tether gets in trouble or not. So I'm, you, you seem a little bit more sure of that. And, I'm, and I'd like to hear your perspective on why. Well, because ultimately there's no there there. And it's at, in the end, so he, he, take a step back. If you take the, the universe of crypto and you draw a box around it, the mark-to-market value, let's call it $2 trillion. I don't know what the number is today. It's probably less given where we are today, but it's in the trillions. The amount of actual fiat in that box supporting that mark-to-market valuation that everybody has assumed is the equivalent of a U.S. dollar 
is far less than that. So what is the leverage ratio of the crypto universe? 30, 40, 50? Pick your favorite number. And the people involved in the conspiracies that we suspect are occurring are totally aware of all of this. And just before the bell rings, the limited amount of fiat that is floating around in the crypto universe is going to get taken out. And so my, my counter to anybody who, said, who wonders whether this is as bad as you all think it is, is where is the giant piles of money that are marking these, these positions in your account uh, in quote unquote US dollars? They don't exist in the banking system. And I know this is always written off as FUD and there's, you know, what's the leverage ratio of the banks? Well, the banks have the Fed and the Fed has an army. Like there's just this reality. So again, like when people say, oh, the U.S. dollar is a Ponzi scheme or, you know, Deutsche Bank uh, launders money, my, my, my response to them is absolutely, totally agree. That's absolutely right. But they also own the guns and they own the power to, um, to police society. And, and this, is, this is just fact. And so I, I don't view it as your bad means the other side is good. You're bad and the other side is more power than you. And what does that mean for what we observe going on in your universe is the question that we try to answer. And so when we look at Bitcoin, when we look at the, the entire universe of cryptocurrencies, we prefer to look through the lens of Bitcoin is priced today at 36,000 tethers. It's not priced at 36,000 US dollars because it's not trading hands in US dollars. Now, we get a lot of pushback from people in the space when we say that. But if you look through that lens, and tethers can be created with, you know, the flimsies of commercial paper backing it, that what is truly the value of your Bitcoin, and one need not look too much further than the, you know, the grace, the BTC, the Bitcoin trust that is trading at such a huge discount to, to the ostensive market value of the Bitcoin that it holds. There's a lot going on. It's huge. It's grown way beyond. I, could, I can only imagine Bennett and team and Cass, like how this has exploded well beyond your wildest dreams when you thought you knew what it was in 2017 and 2016. I totally understand it and I'm sympathetic to it. But the, the universe of crypto is a bunch of people trading tokens back and forth between each other and marking them in U.S. dollars when, in fact, the U.S. dollars backing those valuations don't exist. Yeah, the, what you're talking about specifically is an argument that Cass and I have been having <laughs> on the internet since at least late 2017. And even back then, you'd often hear the argument that Bitcoin's market cap is X amount more than Tether. Even if Tether went to zero, it wouldn't affect Bitcoin that much, is a phrase both Cass and I have heard many times. And Cass even wrote an article about because there is so much embedded leverage in the system and the value of the system vastly exceeds the fiat inflows just because it is such a speculative high growth area and so it's it has been a struggle for Cass and I to convince people that liquidity is not permanent and always there and that it is valuable to know where it is I would point your listeners to the framing of the situation that a co-guest on the Grant Williams podcast with you, Bennett, George Noble, a mutual friend of ours, articulated so well on that podcast. Forget about the market cap of Tether versus the market cap of Bitcoin. What is Tether vis-a-vis -vis the float? And what we see in markets is that prices are set at the margin. And lack of marginal liquidity can mean prices can literally go anywhere. When Bitcoin was trading, you know, in the single digit thousands post March, you know, financial crisis tied with COVID, sixty, seventy thousand dollars would have seemed like, wow, that can print anywhere. Well, we printed there, and we could print right back to one hundred based on the flows and the percent of the float that is real. And tether as a percent of the Bitcoin float is huge, and has a 
highly disproportionate impact on price, not value. And there's a big distinction between price and value. And so to the extent that there might be an entity that can print fake dollars and impact the float, then of course they're going to have a disproportionate impact on the price, um, which is why we don't like to quote Bitcoin in U.S. dollars. And in fact, we wrote a piece very early on where we sort of, in collaboration with, with your friend, mutual friend Bitfinex, wrote a hypothetical piece about how if we were trying to create the perfect fiat confiscation machine, um, how would we do it? And that was our way to sort of explain to people how we think the market actually operates, which is um, leverage is encouraged because everybody knows your positions and they can wipe you out and take your initial deposit. Um, and when you have an infant supply of tether backing you, you can swing the market around and you can um, take people's positions out and, and the initial deposit is split up between the, the, the other parties. And why are traditional exchanges and brokers regulated? They're regulated for a reason because left unregulated, they do all kinds of things that have the net effect of stealing from their customers. You can call it fancy names, you can give it fancy mechanisms, but in the end, it's somebody put money into our broker and we'd like it. So this is, this is where I start getting iffy about everything, is just that while I agree with, I absolutely, obviously, as a skeptic of Tether and Bitfinex and the whole idea of pricing these pretty much in terms of value, valueless cryptocurrencies, most of them. I, I agree with you on all of that. My problem time and time again comes down to, will regulators do anything about it? Because realistically, and maybe you, maybe you disagree with me, but I, I think, and I don't know about Bennett either on this one, but for me, the only way that Tether is stopped and therefore the market is maybe stifled is if regulators come in and, and shut it down. And I think as time continues to go on, more and more people go, but it doesn't seem like they're going to do that. So as a rule, and, and you know, Jim Chanos is a famous short seller, um, and he has a famous phrase, which I'm not either coined or popularized, but um, regulators are archaeologists, not detectives. And so they will not come in and shut down Tether until it's, it's fully blown out. And the only mechanism through which we see, not the only, the most likely mechanism that we see this playing out is a rush to the exits and the limited supply of US dollars circling in the crypto universe is laid bare and the panic ensues, things collapse, and then the regulators come in and start putting people in prison. They don't want to collapse the market themselves because ultimately regulators are um, not very courageous. Some would call them cowards. They know what's going on in the space and they would rather be sort of second to the party. Yeah, if anyone wants our thoughts on the SEC, they can listen to our podcast, uh, F*** the SEC, All My Friends Hate the SEC. <laughs> and we, we wrote a piece about the SEC in, uh, you know, as it pertained to what we think is coming decentralized finance, because Gary Gensler is at his core a politician and he wants to leave a mark. He doesn't want to destroy the system, but he wants a few scalps so that he can um, point to himself and his record as a, um, you know, somebody who's tough on the big uh, fat cats on Wall Street and, and in crypto alike. We don't, for a second, confuse that with him being a legitimate public servant who genuinely cares about protecting retail investors, and that that's a distinction with a critical difference. But, but you brought up, a, you bring up a good point, which is that you don't, you also don't believe that regulators are going to make the first step. And you, you're suggesting that there's going to be this rush to the exits. But I think what Bennett and I, and, and Bennett, tell me if you disagree on this, but what Bennett and I have uh, seen over these... Oh, God, four years now, is that 
all the people involved with Tether, all the all the biggest parties, and we know who those are now, right? This is Alameda Research and Cumberland Global. So these are big, big investors with a lot of deep pockets. They know better than to go to Tether and ask for money. No one goes to Tether and asks for money anymore. Yeah. So again, they might be a big chunk of the U.S. dollars floating in the crypto universe. It doesn't mean that they that if they pucker up and decide to keep their U.S. dollars when a sufficiently large number of retail investors decide they would like to just have their cash and put it in their bank. One potential, well, let me take a step back. Complex systems that are nonlinear are sensitively dependent to initial conditions and create really weird outcomes in ways that are very difficult to model a priori. I'll give you one example of a potential scenario that could destabilize the entire market, which is MicroStrategy. So Michael Saylor owns a lot of Bitcoin. Michael Saylor is Mr. Bitcoin. Michael Saylor is all over the place promoting not only that he will never sell, but detailing to the world what his cost basis is. And Michael Saylor has one critical weakness, which he has mortgaged his company vis-a-vis the bond market to raise both a convertible note and a, and, you know, a senior secured debt instrument with sophisticated investors who expect to be paid in hard currency. And Michael Saylor, if, Bitcoin, if the Bitcoin market goes against him and or other things occur, could lose control of his company. And if Michael Saylor loses control of his company and Michael's strategy enters a zone of insolvency, and this is all pointed out on a great thread that hit Twitter today, we're recording this on Friday, um, from Mike Green, uh, who, who copies the original thread. Uh, Mike Green, for those listening, is at P-R-O-F-P-L-U-M-99, Prof Plum 99, put out a fantastic thread today on his views of the markets. He's one of the sharpest people on Wall Street. Michael Saylor is a potential critical weakness. And if let's just imagine that Michael Saylor lost control of, over MicroStrategy and that the bondholders took over the company and liquidated his Bitcoin and expected to extract fiat currency from the crypto universe, that could be an example of, of an initial seed that grows into a giant crystal that freezes the whole market. And these types of nonlinear systems with very sensitive depends on initial conditions always behave in ways that are unexpected. But, you know, destabilized systems have a way of sort of surprising you in it. And that's just one example. I'm not predicting it. I'm not saying that you should, you know, go short microstrategy or, or anything like that. I'm just telling you there are systemic risks to the market with true hard tunnels of obligations in fiat that matter. Another one might be El Salvador, which we can talk about. Well, I actually wanted to – I don't know if uh, – I don't know if Mike Green – mentioned this in the thread, but the US SEC rejected MicroStrategy's strategies, Bitcoin accounting strategy uh, today. So that's the kind of headline that I'm talking about that comes out of left field, that the market doesn't expect, that causes a panic sale in the stock, and they've got these obligations. So Michael Saylor has created hard fiat, and I know hard fiat to many in the Bitcoin world is, is an oxymoron, but let's just, like, let's just use it for today. We're all friends here. Um, hard fiat obligations that can't be paid back with Bitcoin, or you know, some yield in some you know, <laughs> some uh, staking operation that he's engaging in. And so, MicroStrategy is a real company. They borrowed real money from real players who know how to play games and are not afraid to screw over the people they've lent the money to in search of their principal back plus some opportunistic return. And the same could be said for El Salvador. So this, you know, the president of El Salvador, is, he's got real hard fiat obligations coming due. And the market is beginning to question his capacity to pay that. And just as we're talking, you know, with Bitcoin doing what it's doing, he just put out a tweet saying he bought, you know, more Bitcoin and spent another 
what, $50 million to buy 410 bitcoins because he bought the dip. Um, he has real hard fiat obligations in U.S. dollars coming due that he can't pay back with Tether. So that money's going to come out of the Bitcoin system if, if, if this is his strategy to pay it back. Bennett, can you talk about why? Because we had we had um, Francis Coppola on, and she talked to us about El Salvador and why, to some degree, what he was doing. While it's, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, and all. And I'd say we did an episode on El Salvador, and we were hoping for the best. That we were hoping that Nayib Bukele wouldn't act like a complete authoritarian dictator and do crazy things. And I think we were probably wrong about that. But when we talked to Francis Coppola, like Bennett, can you go into like the reasons that she presented that kind of made sense for El Salvador? Well, I mean, I think what it comes down to with Bukele's strategy is that the country has been dollarized. El Salvador is a dollarized country. They don't have their own currency anymore. They are dependent on remittances and U.S. dollar inflows to continue paying their debt. And so at the time, we kind of believed that the move with Bitcoin was potentially an attempt for Bukele to find a way to print his own money again, which there was reporting around the time he initially started buying Bitcoin that that was one of the plans discussed among Bukele and his brother is a new digital cologne backed by Bitcoin that they would then be able to treat as their own fiat currency again to aid in de-dollarization. Uh, when we had the when we did the bond episode in episode 36, you and I talked about how it kind of seems like Bukele is trying to find sources of money that are less discerning than the average sovereign bond investor, right? Because um, their credit the the cost to insure against default, their credit default swaps have like tripled in the last year as they've yeah, been so buying Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah, it's becoming more and more. Their credit rating has been downgraded by the major agencies. So issuing more sovereign debt will be at a higher interest rate, making it continually more expensive for them to make their interest payments and putting them at increased risk of default. And so at the time, a couple of weeks ago when we recorded that episode, it seemed to us, or it seemed to me at least, that... Bukele was hoping to find money in crypto people to help sustain El Salvador. Uh, and, and that's partially why it was so interesting that the bond could be paid in dollars, tethers, or Bitcoin, right? It's because the proposed they proposed bond. That's not issued yet. Yeah. 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 The, the future bond, the Bitcoin, the volcano bond, <laughs> because... Yeah. They, the terms were materially worse than existing El Salvador debt, which Matt Levine talked about in his newsletter yes. and stuff. And so it only made sense for investors who were attracted because of the marketing. So let me give you what I'm actually saying, which let's just take as an axiom, as a thought experiment, that he is a hero, that he is genuinely popular, non-dictatorial person who is under the grips of the U.S. dollar system, the evil U.S. dollar system that the Bitcoin maxis are fighting against. Let's take all of that as an axiom, as a thought experiment. By buying Bitcoin, by putting his country into the Bitcoin universe and adopting his legal tender, he is handing the evil imperialist fiat dictators of the U.S. the opportunity to create a destabilizing event by overthrowing him or by demanding repayment of these bonds that he can't hit. Uh, which then leads to a series of consequences, hyperinflation in the economy, and then the, the, like a forced liquidation of the Bitcoin that he and everyone in the country have accumulated is the type of out of left field, 
destabilizing event to a complex system that I'm saying could lead to the collapse in, it's far more likely that Bukali falls than the SEC acts on Tether, uh, is, is, is what I'm trying to say. Just to add some color to what I think I'm hearing here, is that Cumberland, Alameda, the major players who arbitrage like the Tether, Peg, and all that are incentivized to do so, so long as there is still money available, right? Liquidity available. As soon as they no longer believe they can get close to a dollar out of it, they stop playing that. Correct. And so it's stable, it's there until it's not. All metastable states give the appearance of stability until the collapse. So I guess my question then becomes, so so let's ha let's say we have one or both of these uh, black swan events magically happen, and now there's a, the, the remaining fiat, whatever's in the Bitcoin system, seems to be drying up. The suggestion, like, like you're saying right now, is that Alameda and Cumberland would be like, well, we're not playing this game anymore right now. Does that imply that they would actually like intentionally go to, let's say, like Tether and demand US dollars? Because I still don't, I don't see these institutional players trying to intentionally hurt Bitfinex or Tether or any of these, these guys. This is where by looking at the two of you and I have the advantage in that you're looking at a chicken that I know that I'm older than you and I have some relevant experience that might be that might be useful to discuss at the moment. The way in which people behave in a true financial crisis is very difficult to predict. And what you think are rock solid institutions on one night become insolvent institutions that nobody wants a piece of the next day. And I would only point you to AIG Goldman global financial crisis for raw examples of what people really do when billions and trillions of dollars and staying out of jail versus being an independently wealthy person are on the line. And anybody who says they know exactly how a collapse would play out is either lying or foolish, but the types of play out scenarios are pretty consistent over time, which is um, the reason why counterparty risk is a thing is that they're in the middle of a crisis becomes a very high pucker factor. Like you suddenly everything freezes up. And so when I said a seed becomes a crystal becomes a freezing, that's what I meant. And I, I, you know, I remember the global financial crisis and, you know, if ultimately, you know, the, the bailout of Wall Street was uh, bailing out the Goldman Sachs of the world at the expense of the AIGs. I mean, sides were picked. And the pick the sides that were picked were picked in large part, many would say, uh, based on the alumni of the various firms who held power in government at that time. And again, like I, just because I'm sort of observing what's going on in the crypto space and pointing out what I think is rampant criminality in it, doesn't mean that I don't think rampant criminality also exists on Wall Street in the quote unquote traditional world. I mean, it does. It's just undeniable. And what happened in the global financial crisis was outrageous. This is, I mean, this is something they, they, they we, we're constantly met with like, if you hate Tether so much, why don't you talk about the Fed? And it's like, I mean. It's called whataboutism and it's a very poor logical argument. But as a crisp analysis framework for the entity of the crypto universe, I think you can learn lessons from what happens when you know, the proverbial number two hits the fan. And um, it very quickly becomes every entity for themselves. And in, even within these entities, people begin to wonder about their personal stakes and their personal risks. Because again, the bigger the value destruction in perceived market value, the, the, the greater the number of people who go to jail for the longest amount of time. And the entire edifice is being held up today by, by Tether. I mean, let's just let's call it what it is. I mean, and so as long as there isn't some 
50, 60, 70, 80% drawdown from here that involves a systemic risk to the rest of the economy, then things are okay. But I would argue that the very strategy of the maximalists, which is to become a systemic risk, to become too big to fail, is the root cause of their future ultimate collapse. So that, that's the way we look at it. Look, we're just one opinion. People can believe us. They can hate us. They can write nasty stuff. They can like us. They can subscribe to us. We're just an opinion in the universe with a reasonable basis of, of an educated guess as to what might transpire. What you said just reminded me of, we had a Robert Green on who worked with a, a fraudulent blockchain company called Blockchain Terminal. And one of the things he said to us that has stuck with me ever since was that if you're these people, the, the Bitcoin maximalists, you know, the people you're talking about, too big to fail. He mentions that like a lot of these companies are like, oh, we're going to disrupt, name your example, like the water industry. We're going to disrupt the phone industry. We're going to disrupt the internet industry. And he says his counter was always, okay, think about the money behind that industry and how you're going to have to be fighting that money to implement the changes that you want to implement and then come back to me and tell me that you can still do it because you're fighting billions of dollars. Yeah, and some industries are ripe for disruption and deserve to be disrupted and waste those billions of dollars in a failed effort to fight it off. Those okay. industries probably also don't own the cops. And the existing banking sector is, I think, criminal syndicate, and they do own the cops. And our point has always been expect the counterpunch, and what does the counterpunch entail? And what does it look like? And um, how do you prepare for it? And what are the milestones that you would need to see before you would pull the chute? If you're going to deposit hard fiat currency into the crypto universe, um, do it with eyes wide open. Uh, we've chosen not to because we understand and we believe that the existing cops are stronger than the, re the rebels. We're quite sympathetic to many of the arguments of the Bitcoin maxis. Uh, we just think they're dangerously naive in, in thinking that they could run circles around people with the guns. I, I certainly think that's a common issue we bump up against. One of the things you mentioned that was striking to me is how during a crisis, you see these kind of metastable structures collapse and like these institutions who you expect to behave one way often will start behaving another way. And that's like why um, 2008 and the prime money market fund has often been kind of the... Yeah, the, the breaking of the buck. Yes, yeah. yes. Has been kind of the mental model I use to try to wrap my head around Tether lots of times. And there you see Lehman Brothers, the classic Wall Street institution, uh, failed to be able to roll their commercial paper. And then within 48 hours, 80% of the assets are withdrawn from the prime money market fund as it breaks the buck. And as it does that, the liquidity across everywhere else dries up and things go to And so that's why I've, I more so than Cass have always left open the possibility that we'd, we'd see a defector in certain cases, like in the game theory, right? Where Alameda, Cumberland, or someone becomes convinced that their game theoretic optimal point is to cut and run, is to save whatever liquidity they can and get out of Dodge. Yeah, so the phenomenon you described, we've written about in a piece that we called 3,170 miles, which used the example of the run on the confidence of the U.S. military in Afghanistan to show you just how quick metastable systems can collapse and some of the milestones and signposts that you would look for a priori to understand that that might be occurring. And we actually began with the Lehman story. Imagine going to work on a Friday, taking the train. You've got you know all of the trappings of a really great job. And by Monday, you're walking into your office with a box and picking up the most precious of your personal belongings. And the speed of, this, of such collapses, generally speaking, scales with the amount of leverage 
that is involved in the system. This is why I always try to frame the discussion. What is the mark-to-market value of the crypto universe divided by the total amount of hard currency floating in that system? And the bigger that number is, the quicker even a partial rush to the exit could cause a collapse in confidence and to trigger people to behave in the way that you just described. And so back in the global financial crisis, these quote-unquote investment banks were running 20, 30 to 1 leverage. And if you're running 30 to 1 leverage, you need a 3.3% drawdown in your equity capital before your equities, you know, in, in sort of the underlying before the equity is wiped out. And if a 3.3% drawdown is a 1 in 1 million event, according to your model, well, then that's fine. You just roll that paper all the time. But the moment you can't, it doesn't take much until you're done. And there's an enormous amount of leverage in the crypto space in the way that I define it, not in the way that I've pledged one Bitcoin to bet 50, and if it goes 2% against me, I'm out. That's not the leverage I'm talking about. I'm talking about the total mark-to-market value in the system divided by the amount of dollars that you can take out of it. Yeah, and that kind of thing is also, I think, why I've been concerned about like some of the inbuilt rehypothecation of assets in a lot of like the modern crypto lending platforms, and even Tether itself and its partnership with those lendings now, where you've got like Celsius making a Bitcoin collateralized loan to a user and then taking the Bitcoins from that, handing it over to Tether to get more Tethers, which are then given out to users to then leverage buy more cryptocurrencies. And the more cycles you go through that, the more cranked up it gets, and the more exaggerated movements become. This is precisely what occurred in the global financial crisis, rehypothecation of assets for uh, overnight funding loans and various other products. And, and you could read books on it that are you know, better, far better uh, uh, grasping of the underlying details, but at the higher level, that's essentially what happens when you get too much leverage in a system. So things that appear solid, or you wake up one day and they're not. And you know, there's the game theory effort would say, let's get too big to fail because we are armed with a critical piece of knowledge is we're going to know slightly before everybody else that we're failing. And I want to like, I want to add that the margin that we're talking about right now, because I think people think about margin and leverage and all of this stuff. Like you think about it, if you think about it at all, you think about it in terms of like your personal brokerage account. And like, if I want to short a stock, I have to have, le- I have to have margin options for my brokerage account. But I think it's actually like, more complex in these systems. And when, for instance, we talk about, I don't know, FTX and Alameda being the number one minters of Tether, also Binance controls all the Tether and Binance and FTX, like, I don't know, Binance has equity in FTX or something, or used to, and all of these companies are like interrelated and have equity in each other. And the leverage, I guess what I'm saying is the leverage isn't just the money or the loans or the or, or the stuff we're talking about currently, it's actually also equity and these other like weird things that are under the surface of, of what we're, we're not privy to them, right? We don't have access to what the equity deals are in these thousands and thousands of cryptocurrency companies. Okay, so, so let's talk about this. Let's create two characters. Let's call one Bennett and let's call the other SBJ. Bennett is depositing US dollars into the crypto universe getting credited tether and then trading coins, pledging coins, being a good trader, buying low, selling high, you know, accruing his account. SBJ is off being the second biggest donor to the Biden campaign 
and buying sponsorship rights to, oh, I don't know, the Miami basketball stadium. Hypothetically. The, the latter of those two exercises involves the removal of Bennett's U.S. dollars out of the crypto universe because those people aren't being paid in Tethers or in Bitcoin or in Ether or in Pick Your Favorite. And so I always try to view the crypto universe as a box with an incoming pipe of U.S. dollars from speculators and an outgoing pipe of U.S. dollars from people who want to leave, people who are bad actors, people who are purposely stealing. Pick your favorite. Doesn't matter. All of the above. And SBJ might not be, might be just a perfectly great trader who made uh, made their money in, in the honest way by out-trading Bennett and decided to remove that money from the system and, and to buy some political cover and some advertising for it. That's fine. But ultimately, there's a finite amount of, of U.S. dollars, let's just simplify it, that went into the system. That number is knowable. It's integrated across the world. And you subtract from that the money that has been legally taken out. And I get told all the time, oh, I can, I can take money out of my, my Coinbase account anytime I want. And so, great. That, that's all part of the flows. There's only so much money that has net gone in. And the total amount of money that has net gone in is far less than the mark to market value that the integrated number of players in the system think they could pull out tomorrow. Now, it's also true that I can't go to my bank and pull out all the cash that I, quote unquote, think that I have in the bank, but they're backstopped by the Federal Reserve. Tether is not the Federal Reserve, although they act like it. They print currency, effectively. That only works if not too many people decide that they would rather have the greenback as opposed to a Bitcoin. And um, as long as the flows going in are greater than the flows going out, you can prop the system up. But there are flows out and the, you know, legality of the flows out or the, the ethics of the flows out, we can debate. But it is clearly far less money in the system than people think they can withdraw, period. It's undeniable. And maybe, oh, well, nobody will ever want to withdraw because we're maxis and that's the whole hodl mechanism. And the whole point of it is that we don't trust the dollars and we were willing to survive the drawdown, maybe. Certainly the one camp that we talked about, which is the maxis, but to the speculators playing the greater fool's trade, if they become too big of the float, that's where, you know, the, the, the housing crisis type moment could evolve. And by the way, like, that's why I don't participate in the market. I, I just, I just simply don't. I don't even participate in the stock market, barely. Um, I, I earn money in fiat. I save by buying real assets and I invest privately where I can affect the outcome. That's the motto of our firm. So replace I with we, and that's what we do. And that's just the, the life we've decided to live in. When people yell at me on Twitter that I should have fun staying poor, I reply, I have fun staying pretty well off. And so that's, that's just the way we look at it. And look, I, you know, maybe we're wrong. We're no corners, old, old men shaking their hands on the lawn. I, fine. But that's, that's our view. That's where we write from. And that's the position we take publicly. I just keep thinking about, because you brought up our friend SBJ, how so often in the cryptocurrency ecosystem, the people who you are trading against have a privileged view compared to you, where often they have or could potentially have access to information that the retail traders cannot get. Like I'm reminded of the CFTC case against BitMEX, where it was revealed that their market making desks would trade against their customers and would assume customer positions often in the liquidations and Stuff. And so when you have desks, entities trading against highly levered, highly margined traders where they know where all the stops and liquidation points are, that in a highly levered system <laughs> just is a thing that always concerns me. Yeah. And look, by the way, 
guys, like the, we started this by saying, or we said early on, that why do regulations exist? Regulations exist because all of the schemes to extract money from your quote unquote clients are well known. They've been around forever. You front run, you give them leverage, you, you know, trade against them. You know where their stops are. You trade on insider information. The reason the SEC exists, as much as you might hate it, the much as everyone might hate it, it exists for a reason. It exists in theory to protect the consumer. And right now, it is a completely lawless, wild, wild west in the crypto space. So what happens? All the same old tricks that used to occur in the regular system and probably still do occur if you bribe the right people, you could you know, get away with it in the traditional financial system. So there's nothing about the suspected behavior of some of the more nefarious actors in the space that comes as a surprise to anybody. It's the natural consequence of if you make the risk of getting caught low and the value of getting away with it high, people will, in, will engage in the behavior. Well, it's and this I just wanted like to again to round out this conversation, which I think at, at near the beginning we were talking about MicroStrategy. MicroStrategy got in trouble during the dot-com bubble for accounting fraud by the executives. And now the SEC is like, hey, MicroStrategy, your accounting's all f***ed up. And it's like sometimes history doesn't just rhyme, it repeats itself. And the real danger in the MicroStrategy situation is the hard pipe connecting the Bitcoin world and the fiat world where actors on the other side of that pipe have rights and lawyers and skills and make a living exploiting weaknesses. And Michael Saylor is out in the world bragging to everybody about his cost position, how he's never going to sell. Well, if you know exactly the cards of your opponent at a poker table and know exactly the program they're going to implement depending on how the flop goes, it's not that hard to beat them in poker. Yeah. And that's, what, that's what's going on. Uh, I, and so... There are vultures on Wall Street. Let's be very clear. These people are ass and they want to take your money, Michael Saylor, and you're making it very easy for them to take your money because you're just laying all your cards on the table. It's literally no different than playing poker with somebody who doesn't hide their cards. Yeah. I mean, if you conceal the other player's cards, you've probably got a lucrative future as general counsel for a crypto company. Um... It's, it's exactly. <laughs> or a, a cheat code owner in a uh, poker site. Taking it back to Jason. That's right. Yeah. God mode, as you called it on the last episode. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we've got God mode on in the uh, crypto markets these days. Effectively. And it, by the way, it doesn't take much of an edge with it. But the other thing they have is an infinite supply of leverage and no worry about default because they could just go back to the tether bank and, and get more. Um, and so you're, you're betting against a very strong house in these markets. And this, again, this is all just what happens when there's no cops. The crimes don't change. The, the labels you put on them and the sophisticated language you use to describe them might evolve. But at its core, it's money in, money siphoned off, and money out. And the, 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 these pipes are just universal. And so Bennett is putting money in and probably unlikely to be able to get his money back if he wanted it. Like there's a reason why these exchanges all have maintenance at the wrong times. Well, and, and like, sorry, what you're talking about with them being able to go back to the Bank of Tether was why it was so shocking to me that when Tether settled with the CFTC and the CFTC revealed in the settlement that Tether had been doing unsecured lending of Tethers to these entities, that the reaction was so tepid in most of the cryptocurrency ecosystem. Because I'm hearing that and, I, and what I hear is that means if these actors have 
insider information, valuable information, they can get a dollar derivative that is known to be unbacked and unsecured and use it until they don't need it anymore. And, and then pay it back, quote unquote. Um, yeah. It's literally, again, so in the 2017 collapse of Bitcoin, it wasn't systemic. It's systemic now. And that is going to go either in either of two ways. It's going to be the safeguard for the people that are going to get away with it. Or it's going to be the genesis of a violent counterreaction to all the players in the space that created the fallout from a systemic collapse. And their bet, their gamble, is we're going to make the price of true regulatory intervention unbearable, and we'll cut a deal. And they might win. I mean, our society is corrupt. Uh, I'm, not, again, I'm not long the ethics and efficacy of the U.S. and global regulatory bodies in the finance space. I'm just a realist. And so it is what it is. But again, anything short of maxi is, is somebody to be destroyed. And so we're in the category of people to be destroyed. Uh, in the eyes of the Maxis. So. Welcome. Yes, it's a, it's a full boat, as I can tell here. Uh, well, um, thank you for joining us, Doomberg. If you have anything else you'd like to add or, or something you'd like to uh, mention to our listeners before we, we jump off, the mic is yours. I would say they should all um, subscribe to the FUD letter, first and foremost, and then, then if they have extra time or don't mind an extra email in their inbox, they should head over to doomberg.substack.com and sign up for the uh, fastest growing, most relevant Substack on earth. And absent that, they can head over to Twitter and follow us at Doomberg T. Just add the letter T as in Thomas or token to, uh, to the end of Doomberg. And they can follow us on Twitter. Uh, we view those as separate products. We're active on Twitter and we, we publish probably about two to three articles a week on Substack on a variety of topics. Um, cryptocurrency is a minor part of what we do we talk about energy predominantly and and to the extent that you know energy is involved in crypto that's relevant but um geopolitics economics and so on we have a lot of fun our pieces are meant to be funny without being silly um provocative without being polarizing and and we intend to teach without being self-indulgent and so if that if that combination of three things is of interest to you head on over to doomberg.subset.com and, and give us your email and you'll get all of our pieces delivered directly into your inbox uh, as we publish them Thank you again. It was a pleasure having you. If you're still listening, I would really appreciate it if you would go ahead and give a listen to some of our other episodes. We recently spoke to Jason Brawl about Poker's Black Friday, Elizabeth Lopato about Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos trial. And if you enjoyed this, go ahead and subscribe. Thanks.